Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, the key documents and speeches which embody them, founding fathers and other great patriots which made those principles come to life, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org. We have a wide range of great resources, including biographical sketches, histories of flags, links to prior episodes, over 130 TV shows, lesson plans, and many other goodies. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, and I'm a former clerk to Justice Dorothy Comstock Riley of the Michigan Supreme Court. I am joined by the fantastic duo of special patriot narrators, Mike Gerard Skinuchny, who is the host of his own fabulous podcast, Be Reasonable, with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, attorney and super IT sales guru and talented podcast narrator. I mentioned my clerkship with Justice Riley not only because it was just a fantastic job and experience, but because this is a special episode about appointments to the United States Supreme Court. In today's day and age, there is no greater political theater than the nomination and appointment of a Supreme Court justice. Unfortunately, we have come to the point where as soon as a justice retires or dies, there are a few obligatory nods to the service of the retiring or deceased justice, and then a tsunami of political jockeying, passionate advocacy, prognostications of doom, and vitriol. Sometimes the Senate hearings become spectacles of, well, they are just spectacles. How did we get here? Where are we headed? If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and now. When we return, we will explore what the Constitution, history, tradition, and current politics has to say about the appointment of members of the Supreme Court. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. When discussing nominations to the Supreme Court, we need to take a step back and recognize what a marvelous creation it truly is. Most of us have just a faint recognition of the groundbreaking path of establishing the Supreme Court. Unlike any other country in history, the United States of America wrote down its supreme law of the land. We began this tradition with the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. However, under the Articles, the federal government only had a single branch of government, the Congress, that is the legislative branch. There was no executive or judicial branch. With the ratification of the written Constitution in 1789, unlike any other country before then in human history, we expressly created three independent and co-equal branches of government and defined the powers of each. Unfortunately, recent opinion polls reveal that less than half of our public can even name the three branches of government. I don't know, maybe they think we're still under the Articles. Well, in any event, here they are. The Legislative Branch, embodied in the Congress. The Executive Branch, embodied in the President. And the Judicial Branch, embodied in the Supreme Court. Article 1 of the Constitution creates and defines the Congress. Article 2 creates and defines the President and Article 3 creates and defines the Supreme Court. All these branches will be explored in great detail in future episodes of the podcast, but today we are focusing on the nomination 
and appointment process for members of the Supreme Court. Article 3 of the Constitution establishes the United States Supreme Court. Section 1 of Article 3 is very simple. Quote, The judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may, from time to time, ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation, which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. Unquote. There are only three sections in Article 3, and not one of them actually addresses how members of the Supreme Court are selected. For that power and process, we need to turn to Article 2, which, remember, creates the President. Section 2 of Article 2 provides that the President, quote, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court, unquote. And that's it. Those are the operative phrases of the Constitution. As you can hear, there's not much there. Despite all the rigmarole you might hear in the press about filibusters and packing of courts and Senate rules and customs and traditions and history, governing precedents and constitutional norms and similar considerations, the Constitution completely vests the authority of nominating the Supreme Court justices with the President and completely vests the confirming of the same with the Senate. And then the President has to actually appoint the confirmed justice for good measure. Seems pretty simple, right? Guess we are done here. I kid, I kid. Don't worry. We are not ending the episode now. There is so much more to unpack here. To begin with, as of the writing of this episode, on September 24, 2020, 163 nominations have been made for the Supreme Court, and 126 appointments were confirmed. Seven were actually declined. The 163 nominations include sitting associate justices who are later nominated to serve as chief justice. So we have done this quite a bit. The rules must be solidly defined, clear as day, bright as the sun, precise like clockwork, formulaic like a scientific equation. Uh, Judge, enough with the metaphors or similes or whatever these are. Can you just get to the point, please? Oh my, what would we do without Mike Gerard? Okay, we're going to divide this episode into seven major sections. And I'm actually going to let Mike Gerard take the first one. The floor is yours. Let me take it? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Your Honor. Okay, to get started. If we go back to Article 3, Section 1 of the Constitution, which is the constitutional provision that establishes the Supreme Court, there's something completely missing. Qualifications. To serve in the House of Representatives, you have to be at least 25 years old, you have to be an inhabitant of the state from which you are elected, and you have to be a citizen for seven years. To be a senator, you need to be 30 years old, be an inhabitant of the state from which you are elected, and been a natural citizen for nine years. The president needs to be 35 years old, a natural-born citizen, and a resident of the country for 14 years. And for the Supreme Court, 40 years old, a citizen... An inhabitant for 10 years? A lawyer? Nope. No such thing exists. Not a single qualification. So in theory, the president could nominate and the Senate could confirm a 16-year-old Burmese child who knows absolutely nothing about the law. Mike Gerard, hold off for a second. Our audience might think that is preposterous, 
but Roman Emperor Caligula did make his horse a senator. But don't give me that look. Seriously, really, 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 he did that. Okay, let's get serious. We know that the U.S. Senate, the greatest deliberative body in the world, would never confirm a horse. But in theory, it is possible. And yes, Caligula really did do that. And although it might seem appealing to appoint a non-lawyer, horse, or human, all of the justices in U.S. history have been trained attorneys. Six justices, however, were foreign-born, including founding father James Wilson, who was appointed by George Washington as one of the original justices. Wilson was recognized as a leading constitutional scholar and contributed heavily at the Constitutional Convention. A more famous name is Felix Frankfurter, which is possibly the coolest name ever, and he served from the 30s until the 70s and was born in Vienna, Austria. And Judge, did you know that the youngest justice was Joseph Story, who was only 32? Oh, and I bet you don't know about George Siros, who was never a judge. He was a lawyer and got to be justice because his uncle was none other than James Blaine, who pulled a few strings with President Harrison. Oh, we should do a podcast about Blaine. Man, was he a character. But to sum up, the takeaway here is that there are no constitutional qualifications to serve on the Supreme Court. And for our second section, we turn to bombastic Brent Bassett. Thanks, Mike Gerard. Thanks for that discussion. That's sweet. That means I can be on the Supreme Court. Awesome. Justice Brent Bassett. That has a ring to it, doesn't it? Okay, let's get back to the program. Second, if we go back to Article 3, Section 1, that is the constitutional provision that establishes the Supreme Court, we just glided by something that is extraordinarily important. The justices serve during good behavior. Stated another way, they have life appointments unless they are impeached and removed from office or they retire. There is a great deal of commentary to be had here as well. Man, what a great gig! Lifetime appointment, great salary, you get to live in Washington, D.C., big comfy chairs, probably comes with a car, and you get front row seats for the State of the Union, and you don't have to applaud? I mean, who gets a sweet job like that for life? It's like nobility in America. Yes, and we will talk about that at length another time. But we are just trying to get through the appointment and confirmation process. Why we have brought it up is because the lifetime appointment means a few things. For example, there is no regular check on the members of the court. Short of impeachment, they can do whatever they want. This is intended to insulate them from political pressure. But this also means that the only time the other branches have input and the people have input about the highest court in the land, is when there is a replacement. It also means the replacements happen haphazardly. You can never know for certain when a vacancy might arise. And who has the opportunity to appoint is also haphazard. One president may never get an appointment, and another might get three or even more. George Washington set the record by appointing the first six justices, and then another three when vacancies occurred. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who served more than three terms, appointed eight. Three presidents had exactly zero nominations. William Henry Harrison, Zachary Taylor, and Jimmy Carter. In sum, 
Lifetime appointments means amazing independence and unknowable times for replacement. Third, returning back to Article 3, Section 1, did you notice that the number 9 was not used? This is another great omission. There is no indication whatsoever of how many justices serve on the court. That is up to Congress. In our lifetimes, nine has been the magic number. Three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three as a magic number. No, I said nine is the magic number. Number nine? Number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. Notice we play the Beatles every time we can to irritate Mike Gerard. <laughs> number nine, like that's even a song. Sorry about that, folks. So the Constitution does not have a minimum or maximum number of justices. In theory, the Supreme Court could be one justice or a thousand. We have settled on nine for generations. How did that happen? Well, the first Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1789 implementing Article 3, Section 1's directive that a Supreme Court be established. That act provided that the Supreme Court would have a total of six members, one of whom would be the Chief Justice. Just a few years later, Congress passed the Judiciary Act of 1801. Now get this, the 1801 Act was passed in the lame duck session of Congress, that is, after the November elections and before the new Congress and President came in. In fact, it was passed after Thomas Jefferson beat President John Adams and the party in power. The Federalists were swept out of office by Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. So in the waning days of their power, they reduced the number of justices to four. The idea was to deprive Jefferson of the ability to make any appointments when vacancies arose. The plan didn't kick people out of office. That would be unconstitutional. But as people retired, Jefferson wouldn't be able to replace them until the court went down to three members. That plan didn't work. When Jefferson and his party took control, they simply repealed the 1801 Act and reinstituted the number to six. In 1807, which would have been near the end of Jefferson's second term, they created yet another seat, bringing the Supreme Court up to seven members. Naturally, Jefferson filled the new slot. The seven-member court remained in place for 30 years. In 1837, Congress enlarged the Supreme Court to nine seats, and President Andrew Jackson appointed two brand-new justices. That number was magic until the Civil War, and in 1863, they added a tenth member. But only three years later, in 1866, the court was reduced to seven justices. When retirements of the ten-member court started to come in, there would be no new replacements. But three years after that, it went back to nine with the passage of a new Judiciary Act. President Ulysses S. Grant had the Super Mario Brothers bonus of appointing two new members to the Supreme Court. And nine has remained the magic number since 1869. There was one serious attempt since then to add additional members. During the first couple of terms of the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the Supreme Court struck down a number of New Deal laws. FDR became very frustrated and developed a court-packing scheme in 1937. 
the scheme would add a new member of the court for any justice that was at least 70 and a half years old. Under the scheme, up to six more justices could be added. If enacted, this would have allowed the new appointees to swamp the Supreme Court majority that was hostile to the New Deal. Despite having an overwhelming Democrat majority in Congress, it failed. It garnered political opposition as an unprecedented power grab, even within FDR's party. Perhaps more important, almost immediately after FDR announced the court-packing scheme, Justice Owen Roberts, who had been part of the majority striking down New Deal laws, began voting to support the constitutionality of the New Deal. Many legal scholars call this the switch in time that saved nine. Each of these increases and decreases that were actually implemented were done so for a variety of reasons, and we may very well explore them in future episodes. The point here is that the number is not dictated by the Constitution, but by Congress, and when changes are made, they are usually done for political reasons. There is no law going on here. Back to you, Judge Warren. Thank you, Bombastic Brent. Fourth, the Senate has the power to decide how to go about confirmation. Of course, we are familiar with the extraordinarily illuminating modern practice of Supreme Court nominations involving hearings with the candidate, live in person, required to answer a long laundry list of questions that goes on for days, with questioners who spend just as much time opining about their own opinion as they do asking questions that are incredibly intense, under the spotlight, with thousands of cameras, and accompanied by high-pitched political rhetoric. But that is no requirement of the Constitution. How the Senate decides to evaluate any particular nominee of the President is entirely up to the Senate. Under the Constitution, each chamber of the Congress is in charge of its own rules, committees, and hearings. That is all Senate-made, and the Senate can unmake it at any time. As of the drafting of this episode, the Senate has confirmed 126 Supreme Court nominations. Now, the Senate also confirms a huge array of other officers nominated by the President and has historically only rejected less than 2% of them. But for the Supreme Court, they have rejected nearly 25%. Until the 1860s, nominations did not even go to committees. Instead, they were considered on the Senate floor by all the senators. In 1868, the Senate adopted rules that for the first time required nominations to be referred to appropriate committees. Still, hardly any referrals resulted in hearings at the committee level. With regard to the Supreme Court, the first time there was a public hearing was that of Louis Brandeis in 1916. But he did not even have to physically appear at the hearing. Brandeis was subjected to a hearing because of his perceived progressive political perspective and, unfortunately, probable anti-Semitism of some senators. A few years later, Senator Hugo Black was nominated and quickly confirmed with no hearing. However, a journalist broke the story that he had been a member of the KKK, quite an embarrassing disclosure not previously addressed by the Senate. In fact, the journalist won a Pulitzer Prize. The Senate and Judiciary Committee members promised that they would be more open and do a better job vetting candidates in the future. Ironically, Hugo Black became a very strong proponent of individual liberties and the Bill of Rights while on the court. The next nominee was Felix Frankfurter in 1939. He was an immigrant, and a group of senators accused him of being a communist and disloyal to the country. 
Some of this may have also been motivated by anti-Semitism. His supporters urged him to testify on his own behalf. He followed their advice and he sat before the Judiciary Committee and took unrestricted questions the first time that had happened in public. Nominees between Brandeis and Frankfurter did not appear before the Senate at all, or only appeared in a closed session of the committee, or only answered some very narrowly tailored prepared questions. Brandeis's personal appearance, precedent-setting hearing, paid off. He convinced the committee that he was deeply patriotic and turned the tide in his favor, and he was confirmed. As time moved on, the focus of the hearings morphed from competence, corruption, and patriotism, which had sunk or threatened some nominations, to judicial philosophy. Although this perspective came more into focus with each passing decade, it truly crystallized when Judge Robert Bork was nominated by President Ronald Reagan. By all accounts, Judge Bork was a brilliant jurist and a fair judge, but that didn't matter to the Senate. Lobby groups who felt their positions would be threatened by Judge Bork's originalist jurisprudence put enormous pressure on the senators to kill the nomination. Bork refused to back down and demanded a hearing. He answered the questions with integrity and courage. Take a quick listen. No civilized person wants to live in a society without a lot of privacy in it. And the framers, in fact, of the Constitution protected privacy in a variety of ways. The First Amendment protects free exercise of religion. The free speech provision of the First Amendment has been held to protect the privacy of membership lists and a person's associations in order to make the free speech right effective. The uh, Fourth Amendment protects the individual's home and office from unreasonable searches and seizures and usually requires a warrant. The Fifth Amendment has a right against self-incrimination. There's much more. There's a lot of privacy in the Constitution. Uh, Griswold in which we were talking about a Connecticut statute which was unenforced against any individual except the birth control clinic. Griswold involved the Connecticut statute which banned the use of contraceptives. There was no, and, and Justice Douglas entered, uh, ended that opinion with a rather uh, eloquent statement of how awful it would be to have the police pounding into the marital bedroom. And, and it would be awful, and it would never happen because there is a Fourth Amendment. And the police, nobody ever tried to enforce that statute, but the police simply could not get into the bedroom without a warrant. And what magistrate's going to give the police a warrant to go into search for signs of use of contraceptives? I mean, it's a wholly, it's a wholly bizarre and uh, imaginary case. Well, that didn't work out too well for the honest intellectual judge. He was defeated. For people my generation, we even made that experience a verb, to be borked. If you are borked, that basically means you are ripped down through character assassination or unfair criticism, even if you are superbly qualified or were right. Nowadays, many potential nominees refuse to answer questions dealing with jurisprudence directly, fearing that they will be borked. Other confirmation hearings have been highly divisive, sometimes dealing with allegations of old personal scandals, such as those that engulfed Justice Brett Kavanaugh's hearing with an allegation of sexual assault from decades earlier. Some said this was absolutely appropriate. We needed to flesh out everything. Others argued it was the politics of personal destruction, just a warmed over version of being borked. In some, the Senate has the unfettered authority to run the confirmation any way it wants. Mike Gerard, 
why don't you cover number five? Thank you, Judge. And you know what? Maybe my confirmation hearing would take longer than a day. Nothing better than being borked. All right, we're on to five. And hand in glove with the process is the timing. Again, how long the Senate takes is entirely up to the Senate. A whole slew of Supreme Court justices have been nominated and approved within a month, including such notables as John Paul Stevens, Harry Blackman, Warren Berger, Felix Frankfurter, William O. Douglas, and Frank Murphy. Truman had one nominee who was approved the next day, and FDR had one approved the same day of the nomination. But President Warren Harding, he apparently was the master of this process. He had two nominated and approved the same day, including legal giant William Howard Taft. And Taft himself had one of his nominees approved on the very same day that he nominated him when he was president. Ah, yes, those were the days. In short, the timing is also up to the Senate. Bombastic Brent, will you take number six? Of course, Mike Gerard, And I'm sure your appointment would be confirmed on the same day. Sixth, you may have heard the term filibuster, but that is not part of the Constitution. In layman's terms, a filibuster is when one or more senators work to stop a vote on a piece of legislation, treaty, or a presidential nomination. It grinds the process to a halt. The old-fashioned sense of a filibuster is just to keep talking. The senator holds the floor until the other side gives up or until the senator and his or her allies run out of steam. The most famous filibuster in history was a piece of fiction. There's no place out there for graft or greed or lies or compromise with human liberties. And that, if that's what the grown-ups have done with this world that was given to them, then we better get those boys' camps started fast and see what the kids can do. And it's not too late, because this country is bigger than the tailors, or you, or me, or anything else. Great principles don't get lost once they come to light. They're right here. You just have to see them again. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain simple rule. Love thy neighbor. Yes, that is the actor, Jimmy Stewart. Think of the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life portraying a somewhat accidental senator trying to fight corruption in Washington, D.C., and he prevails in the film uncovering a corrupt political scheme. Now, the old-fashioned filibuster still exists, and there have been some notable examples of that recently, including with Senators Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders. And no, they were not on the same side, and they dealt with entirely different issues. They almost never agree on anything. But they both took up Jimmy Stewart's mantle in real life, Unlike the movie, however, they both lost. But this type of filibuster, the never-ending talking, has been superseded long ago. And if anyone knows about never-ending talking, it would be Brent. Hey, I resemble that comment. And true to form, I will keep talking. In 1917, the Senate adopted a rule called cloture which allowed the Senate to stop discussion on a topic if there was a supermajority to end the debate on a particular piece of Senate business. 
At that time, the Senate adopted an internal rule, Rule 22, that allowed two-thirds of the Senate chamber to vote to end any debate. With regard to using a filibuster against a Supreme Court nomination, a minority of senators never tried that tactic until 1968. It was first invoked against President Lyndon B. Johnson's nomination of Associate Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas as Chief Justice. Yes, the President has to nominate the Chief Justice and do it separately even if the nominee is already on the court. The filibuster was not partisan in nature. The filibuster was also used against William Rehnquist, twice, once when he was first appointed to the court as an associate justice and once when he was elevated to chief justice. They both failed. A fully partisan filibuster was used against Samuel Alito when he was nominated by President George W. Bush, but he prevailed as well. The two-thirds rule lasted for almost 60 years. However, in 1975, it was lowered to three-fifths, that is, 60 votes. That rule met its demise much more quickly. After the Democrats filibustered Justice Alito's nomination in 2006, the Republicans returned the favor against President Obama's lower court nominees. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, a Democrat from Nevada, was so frustrated that he and his party exercised what some dubbed the nuclear option. That is, in 2013, they killed the filibuster for all presidential appointments, except for Supreme Court justices. Then, even that last vestige of the filibuster got tossed out by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, when he led his party to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in connection with President Trump's first appointment to the Supreme Court. And that is where we stand today with the filibuster. In sum, despite the long-storied history of the filibuster, today the only way to filibuster is to take the Senate floor and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Brent, okay, stop filibustering my next segment. And trust me, we will be discussing filibusters at greater length in future episodes. Now, seventh, the President and the Senate had the ultimate discretion about whether to proceed with or how to proceed with Supreme Court nominations and confirmations. And again, the Constitution is silent. It simply says the President nominates and the Senate has the authority to give advice and consent. The President does not have to nominate justices and the Senate does not have to give advice or consent. There are absolutely no time limits, time frames, restrictions, or requirements. This is entirely political. In recent years, there have been tremendously controversial attempts to confirm or not to confirm Supreme Court vacancies. In 2016, after Justice Scalia passed away, President Obama nominated federal judge Merrick Garland, who, by all accounts, was a good man and jurist. The Senate refused to hold a hearing, arguing that since it was a presidential election year, the Senate was held by the Republican Party and the presidency was held by the Democratic President, Obama, then the voters should therefore decide. The gambit worked when Republican President Trump somewhat unexpectedly won the election and was able to appoint Scalia's replacement. As of the drafting of this episode in September 2020, the passing of iconic Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
in an election year has led President Trump to declare that he will nominate someone very quickly, and the Republican-led Senate has vowed to have a confirmation vote before the election. Now, many have accused the Republicans, especially Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, of hypocrisy. But McConnell is claiming that because the Senate and the President are now both Republican, they are entitled to move forward. We now know that under the Constitution, the Senate and President can do whatever they want. But what does history and tradition say about this? The historical record is actually pretty clear from at least 1900 until 2016. If there was a vacancy in the Supreme Court during an election year, the President usually nominated and the Senate usually confirmed the nominee. Six such nominations and confirmations were made. Two others didn't occur, but they had nothing to do with the fact that it was an election year. To go all the way back in American history, Dan McLaughlin recently summarized the situation in the National Review. There have been 29 such vacancies, and presidents made nominations for all of them, in most cases promptly. In 19 cases, the president's party held the Senate. 17 of the 19 vacancies were filled, the exceptions being the bipartisan filibuster against Lyndon Johnson's nominees in 1968 and George Washington's withdrawal and resubmission in the next Congress of a nominee who was ineligible to be confirmed. He'd voted to create the court, and the Constitution made him wait until there was a new Congress seated. Nine of those 17 were confirmed before the election and eight after. Three were confirmed in lame duck post-election sessions, even though the president had just lost re-election. Well, what about McConnell's take that when the Senate is held by one party and the president by another, that the Senate has the authority to hold back? McLaughlin summarized this too. In 10 cases, the party opposing the president held the Senate. Only one of the 10 got a nominee confirmed before the election. Two were confirmed after the election when the president's party won the election, and one, Dwight Eisenhower's nomination of William Brennan, was a pre-election recess appointment that was confirmed by the new Senate in the new year after Eisenhower was re-elected. Of the 29 times vacancies happened during a presidential election year, every single time the president made a nomination. In fact, 22 of the presidents faced this situation and they all made a nomination. And this group of presidents sounds like a Patriots Hall of Fame. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, FDR, Dwight Eisenhower, and Barack Obama. The Adams appointment was the most famous and the most consequential. Adams had been defeated by Thomas Jefferson for the presidency in 1800, and Jefferson's party also won a majority of the Senate. In the last few days of his presidency, Adams rushed to fill judicial vacancies. These were attacked as midnight judges because they seemed to have been done in the cover of night at the last minute. One of those appointments was his very own Secretary of State, John Marshall. And yes, the John Marshall, who is by far the most important and influential justice in American, probably world, history. Some historians even say that John Adams' most important decision of his entire presidency 
even more important than avoiding war with France, even more important than bowing to the peaceful transition of power, was Chief Justice Marshall's appointment because of Marshall's overarching importance to the Constitution and the rule of law. Now, that's a legacy done in the dark of night. And the takeaway here, the Senate and the President can exercise their powers anytime they want. Judge Warren, bring us home. Thanks, Mike Gerard. I know we said there were only seven items that we'd be reviewing today, but I can't resist mentioning an eighth, which may help explain the political environment we find ourselves in when it comes to Supreme Court judicial appointments. This factor is not part of the nomination and confirmation process, but it gives great illumination about why we take them so seriously. When the Supreme Court was originally established, it was perceived by most as the weakest branch of government. Thomas Jefferson was very, very concerned with a runaway, unaccountable court, but he was in the distinct minority. John Jay, the first chief justice, left the job to become governor of New York. At that point, he thought being governor was a much more important responsibility than the chief justice of the United States. In fact, several of the early justices quickly left the position. But beginning with Chief Justice John Marshall's decision in Marbury v. Madison, which struck down an act of Congress as being unconstitutional pursuant to the authority of judicial review, the Supreme Court slowly but surely became a major force in the Republic. Following the Civil War and the adoption of the Reconstruction Amendments, the court was further armed with authority on a federal level. With several waves of judicial decisions in the 20th century, many of the key political and cultural issues in American life became resolved by the Supreme Court. Civil rights, criminal procedure, freedoms of speech and press, abortion, administrative law, property rights, the right to bear arms, political freedom, religious liberty, marriage, the scope and depth of congressional and presidential powers, and so many other hot-button issues become definitively established by the federal Supreme Court. Whether you view the Supreme Court as an untethered monstrosity that has usurped the role of the political branches or a palladium of liberty and freedom, or perhaps both, depending on the issue at hand, there is no denying that, for good or ill, the Supreme Court is enormously powerful. It can strike down laws passed by the Congress, which represents nearly 330 million people and 50 states, and the President, who represents the people as a whole. It can rebuff the President. At least in today's environment, there is not much practical those political branches can do when the Supreme Court overrules their actions or determines the scope of the Constitution. When we have a Supreme Court that is unchecked by the political branches, with members who serve for life, usually for several decades, which wields enormous power, which vacancies are unpredictable, and when who replaces the justices is a roll of the dice, is it any wonder that political parties, special interest groups, the media, and the general public become highly and passionately engaged in Supreme Court nominations? And is it any wonder that appointments become heated, nasty, and brutal affairs? Could this change? Perhaps in the future there may be a new way of addressing Supreme Court vacancies and nominations. In Michigan, for example, we have age limits. You can't run again as a judge if you're over 70 years old. Some have proposed a maximum number of years a justice can serve, a term, like 20 or 25 years. Some have suggested that each president be guaranteed at least one appointment per term. But that is all for future constitutional debates. 
What we have now is the system we've outlined in this episode. It may be far from perfect, but it is what it is. In sum, their enormous power and haphazard way by which they are chosen all but ensure that Supreme Court appointments are highly controversial. Some key takeaways from this episode. Supreme Court justices are nominated by the President and must be confirmed by the Senate. There are no formal qualifications on who can be a Supreme Court justice, but all have been attorneys and a few have been immigrants. The number of justices is set by law, totally at the discretion of Congress. The process for confirming or not Supreme Court nominees is entirely up to the Senate. Whether they have a committee hearing, filibuster, and timing is all up to the Senate. The current system all but inevitably results in a laser-like focus on nominees and passionate jockeying and controversy by politicians, special interest groups, and the general public. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation until his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. Unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leo Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.